It is a great honor to be here. I'm never preached in this pulpit. I'm a graduate of this institution, but I've never stood here. It's a great honor, and to have my pastor introduce me is very, very special. Welcome Mount Zion. Welcome Francis Asbury Society. That touches me that you're here. Our scripture this morning that was just read, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus, says this, God has given him a name, a name that is above every name, that at the name of every name will bow. I want to ask this morning the question, what's in a name? Of course, I didn't make up that question. Shakespeare did. It comes from Act 2, Scene 2 of Romeo and Juliet. When Juliet is on her balcony, not knowing that Romeo is in the bushes listening to what she's saying to herself, and she's fallen head over heels in love with Romeo, but there's a problem. It's a name problem. Romeo is a Montague, and Juliet is a Capulet, and Montagues and Capulets don't associate. And so she says, which for most of my life was an enigma, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I had to actually look it up to understand what wherefore art thou meant. But it means, why are you Romeo? Why are you named a name that is my enemy. Your name is a problem. Why can't you be named Bob? <laughs> it's hard to imagine a classic of Western literature named Bob and Juliet. <laughs> and then she says this, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. She's actually asking a very profound philosophical question. Can you separate a thing from its label? Do labels matter? A rose, if you called it an onion, would it smell like a rose? And a Montague, if he were a Capulet, wouldn't he be different? Now, I confess that that question goes to the very heart of deconstructionism and postmodern philosophy, trying to separate things from their labels, and I get a little confused, especially when it comes to teenage romance. But one thing I'm not at all confused about, and that is that the scriptures tell us the name of Jesus is not to be tampered with. A Messiah by any other name will not smell as sweet. A God by any other label will not have the power to save. This is not a name. This is the name. And you tamper with this name, if I understand scripture, at jeopardy to your own soul's destruction. What's in a name? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I don't know if you bring Bibles with you to chapel in seminary anymore. 
But we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, where Peter, of all people, Peter who had denied the name, is given the assignment of preaching the first gospel sermon. And Luke records this sermon not just because he wants us to know the gospel. He records this sermon because he wants us to know how to preach the gospel. This is the standard for what it means to preach the gospel. And it comes only when the power of Pentecost has filled a heart like Peter's and suddenly he gets it and he realizes it's all about the name. Listen to what he says. I'm beginning the reading at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. What has come before this in Peter's sermon is really preface, and his sermon proper begins here in verse 22, and listen to how Peter preaches. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus. I'm moved by the fact. The first word of the first gospel sermon. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Skip down to verse 32. I hate to skip passages, but I want, you to, I want to cover what I want to cover. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For God did not ascend, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You can stand for the benediction. <laughs> That's the sermon. There's no invitation. There's no questions. There's not even an application. It's just Jesus is Lord. This is the gospel message. It's the proclamation of a name, of a person. I want to just make a few very simple, not simplistic, but very simple observations about this first gospel sermon. First of all, notice the content. The first word, Jesus. 
the last word, Jesus. And all in between, Jesus. And when he finishes his sermon and the people are cut to the heart by the reality that God so loved the world that he gave his son and we didn't know who he was and we helped with his death, they said, brethren, what should we do? And Jesus said, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the one you didn't recognize. That's the name for baptism. And so Peter stood up to preach. He didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't preach the Ten Commandments. He didn't preach the Book of Romans. All of that has its place, important place. He preached the name. He preached the name. I was uh, reminded just early this morning as I was getting my final thoughts together that when John Wesley commissioned Thomas Koch to go to America to help the new formed nation of America, I think the year was 1784, he commissioned Thomas Koch at the pier saying goodbye as the ship went away with these words, offer them Christ. It's not a doctrine you're to promote. It's not a theological perspective. It's not a worldview. Give them a person of the living Jesus. Now this is what controls all of the sermons of the book of Acts. Go through the book of Acts and study the sermons, and it's a great way to measure your own sermon abilities on am I preaching what they preached. Turn to chapter 3. We don't have time to go far in Acts, but let's just go a couple of chapters. Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, and they see a lame man at the gate who wants money. And you remember what Peter says? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, what? In the name. In the name of Jesus. Walk. Well, this caused quite a stir. And it wasn't just a lame man walking that had Jerusalem abuzz. It was that J word, that Jesus word. That just bothers us. Listen to what happens in verse 11. And while he clung to Peter and John... All the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw that a crowd had gathered, he opened his mouth. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. There's that word again, that name. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, and you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. That's quite a statement. How do you kill the author of life? But God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, this man has been made strong, whom you see and know, 
And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming, that word just bothers us, Jesus. Don't use that Jesus word. You're free to practice your religion. You're free to practice your liturgies. You're free to do your catechizing. But just don't use that name. It really bothers us. Skip down to verse 7. When Peter and John are brought on trial, and when they had set them in the midst of them, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you heal this man? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because this is what Pentecost is all about. It gives you the power to name the name. Peter said, rulers, Of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name, there he goes again using that J word, (laughs) by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus It's the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized You guys have been with Jesus. (laughs) It's all about that name. Skip down to verse 17. But in order that it may not spread further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in that name. So they called them and they charged them. Don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than God, you be the judge, because we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because the people were all praising God for what had been done. Now that goes through all the book of Acts. Whether in Jewish or Gentile settings, the apostolic gospel is just naming the name. Naming the name. What's in a name? When it comes to this name, everything. Life, death, heaven, and hell, salvation, and damnation are all wrapped up in this name. And Peter gets it. Because Pentecost opens the eyes and opens the mouth. So that you name the one name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Now when they preached the name, you heard it as I read Peter's sermon. What he said was basically this. Jesus, he came, he did miracles, 
He died on a cross. His life was not taken from him. He gave his life. And you killed him. You are responsible for the death of Jesus. But God raised him. And now he's ascended to heaven, and today he's at the right hand of God, and he is Lord. Not Caesar. <laughs> Jesus is Lord today. Let's stand for the benediction. Go home. That's the message. That's the message. He came, he died, he rose, he ascended. And let all the house of Israel know that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. As I was preparing for today, I got to thinking pretty critically about my own preaching habits. And I wonder in my life, how much have I preached like this? Because very often, my preaching, like many preachers I hear, is made in the imperative mood rather than the indicative mood. I don't know who I first put it that way, but that really stuck with me. I love to preach the imperatives. You ought. Do this. Don't do that. And the finger comes out. It's just intuitive. This is a powerful place to stand. And we preach the imperatives. But that's not what Peter stood up and did. He preached the indicative. He came. He died. You killed him. God raised him. He reigns and he's going to come back. Amen. Let's go home. And if you say, well, where's the imperative? The imperative will come naturally if you preach the indicative in the power of the Spirit. Because when Peter preached it, it says the people were cut to the heart. You mean God sent his son and we didn't even see him and we killed him? Brethren, what shall we do? And that's when Peter, I think, came back to the pulpit and said, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> Repent. Believe. Be baptized. Receive the Spirit. Those are the imperatives. But they only work when we preached the revolutionary power of the indicative. Not you ought, but he is. He reigns. And if Jesus reigns, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. Buddha is not Lord. Confucius is not Lord. Mohammed is not Lord. And just because it's an election year, neither is Hillary or Donald. Jesus alone is Lord. And when they preached it, the Roman Empire was shaken to its foundations. You may remember the story of a bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp, who at 86 years of age was arrested because he wouldn't burn incense to the empire and just say the little formula, Caesar is Lord, just and one of his arresters said, Polycarp, just say the words. What's the big deal? Just say Caesar is Lord. And in so many words, Polycarp said, I'm not going to say those words, not because I don't love my country, 
I'm going to say, not say those words because they're not true. <laughs> Caesar's not Lord. He thinks he is. And many of his followers think he is. But it's a lie. And Caesar will disappoint you. But the one who is Lord never will. And so he was burned at the stake. And when they asked him to deny the name, he said, for 86 years I've been his servant and he's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? There's only one name. There's only one name. The second thing I want you to notice in this sermon is not just that the content is Jesus, but notice who the preacher is. For years, I read this sermon and never really realized this is Peter, the apostle of the foot-shaped mouth. It was only a few months earlier than this where Jesus, after the great confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, began to introduce his disciples to the cross. And the Messiah is going to Jerusalem, Jesus said. He'll be rejected, he'll be killed, he'll be crucified. And Peter, the apostle of the foot-shaped mouth, stands up and says, No, Lord, Messiahs don't do crosses. I've read the book. Messiahs do thrones. Messiahs don't do crosses. Now, no Lord is an oxymoron if ever there was an oxymoron. You can't say no, Lord, in the same sentence unless you're Peter, who does it four times. If you want to preach a great four-point, four-sermon series, study the four times Peter said no, Lord. I'll give them to you. This is good. This will preach. One is on the great confession. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. No, Lord. Messiahs do thrones, not crosses. The second is when Jesus, the Messiah, the second member of the Trinity, washes feet. No, Lord, Messiahs don't do feet. The third one was when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. No, Lord, not rock. Not rock. Thomas might. He's a doubter. Matthew might. He collects taxes for heaven's sake. Because you can count on me. No, Lord, I will never deny you. The fourth one's the most interesting of all. Because it comes in Acts chapter 10 after Pentecost. When Peter's sleeping on the roof of his house and God lets down a sheet filled with barbecue and bacon. And says, Peter, eat. And you know what he says? No, Lord. I'm Jewish. <laughs> I've read the book. I don't do pork. Then the sheet goes back and Peter says, what was that all about? And downstairs there's a knock at the door. And Gentiles from Cornelius' house said, an angel told us to come here because the guy on the roof has a message from my master Cornelius. An unclean Gentile. And before that vision, Peter would have said, no, Lord, I don't do Gentiles. You're not going to ask that of me. But suddenly, he's getting it. 
You don't say no, Lord. But this is the guy preaching the cross. He says all the prophets and all of the law said that the Messiah must suffer. But not only is Peter the one who didn't understand the cross, but suddenly does, Peter is also the one who a few weeks earlier had denied the name. Jesus is arrested. And a servant girl comes up to Peter by the fire. And she says, I know you. You're one of those Jesus people. And Peter says, don't put that, don't put that J word on me. Don't put that label on me. And he denied the one name that could save his soul, that could set him free. And he went out and wept bitterly. What's wrong with me that I would deny the name? I don't know about what it's like for you when you try to witness. But if you're like me, witnessing is hard. And on a day when I'm feeling really courageous, like sitting next to someone on an airplane, you might say, where are you in terms of spirituality? Spirituality. You might be a little more courageous and say, do you have a church home? Or if I'm feeling really spirit-filled, I might say, what do you think about God? But to slip the J word into the conversation... I don't know about you, but it takes Pentecostal power for me to name Jesus in a conversation. I came across this quote from Peter Kraft a few years ago from his book, Back to Virtue. He said this, If you confess at a fashionable cocktail party that you personally love to play with porcupines or that you plan to sell CIA secrets to the communists, or that you are considering become a Palestinian terrorist, you will find a buzzing, fascinated crowd around you eager to listen. But if you confess that you believe that Jesus is God and that he died to save us from our sin, you will very soon be talking to empty air with a distinct chill in it. Because that name is different. You can name the name Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius and people will just sort of hang in with you. But you name that name, eyes will roll and people will mark you off as a fanatic because in their heart of hearts they know that name is different. There is something about that name. If only Jesus had said, I am a way, a truth, and a life, and one of the ways to the Father is through me. Or if only Peter had preached, and there is salvation in many names, for there are many names given under heaven by which we can be saved, and Jesus is one of them. Man, the postmodern world would have leaned forward and said, good for you. But that's not what the gospel is, and you and I both know it. The gospel is wrapped up in one name, and if Jesus saves, Buddha doesn't. And there's the rub. And there's the scandal of the gospel. And that's why it takes Pentecostal power to preach the gospel. 
Because you and I know when people name that name, they get thrown to the lions. They get burned at the stake. They get crucified. Because whenever that name is preached, there's either a riot or a revival. And on Pentecost Sunday, 3,000 people said, I love that name. I want to know more about that name. Because I've tried all the other names and they don't work. Jesus is Lord. To name that name may get you killed. But it's the only name that is at the heart of the gospel. Martin Luther got it. I looked it up again this morning just to get the words to his amazing hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Just one verse. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, he will win the battle. And that's why there was a reformation, because Martin Luther discovered the indicative. The first creed of the church, most biblical scholars say, is these three words, Jesus is Lord. Study it in the New Testament, you'll, you'll see it repeated in different ways. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, but Jesus. Let me close with one story. For 18 years, Katie and I, I was served as a pastor of a church in Albany, New York. And our church was about three or four miles from the Capitol building of New York State. So we were right there in the city that George Barna says is the most post-Christian city in America. It's number one on his list. We were there for 18 years and loved every day of it, honestly. But I always wondered, can't we have some sort of an influence in the capital? And one day, I don't even know how I got it, I got an invitation to pray over the New York Senate. I opened the letter, I said, I didn't even know these sorts of things existed anymore. And the letter said, and if you agree to pray over the New York Senate, you'll receive a $35 paycheck. I said, I'll go. Well, I got there, and by the time I got there, I was beginning to get nervous. The capital looks like one of the chateaux in the Loire Valley of France, and the Senate chamber is all marble and these very impressive-looking men and women all at their desks. And I was beginning to receive my orientation for my little role at the beginning of the Senate session, and the parliamentarian, a woman, came to me and said, Reverend Key, we're so glad you're here. You have three instructions. And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, first of all, be brief. I said, I understand. Secondly, she said, please don't make us hold hands. <laughs> I wondered what the history was behind that recommendation. But then she got to her point, And she said, be non-sectarian. thought about that quite a bit. I knew what she meant. 
That's code language. What she meant was, don't use the J word. At least that's how I heard it. Just play, pray to the blob god, pray to the generic deity, and we'll all smile, pay you your $35, and it'll be fine. But don't use that word. That word bothers us. She really helped clarify for me what my role was that day. She didn't know it. I had prepared my little prayer. I have no memory of what it was at this point. It was for the drought or for the families of the senators or something. But as I got to the end of my prayer, I knew, like I knew I was standing there, there was one purpose I had behind that podium, and that was to name the name. And my knees were knocking. I knew it doesn't really matter what I pray, it only matters the name I name. So I got to the end of my prayer, and I paused, took a deep breath, and I assure you my knees were knocking. And I said, in Jesus' name, and you could feel the chill in the room when the name was named. I sort of wobbled my way down the steps. I knew the parliamentarian was not happy, but I knew God had winked at me. Good job. The best part of the story is this. The sergeant-at-arms, this big, muscular, African-American Vietnam veteran who had been standing underneath the podium for the whole time, just sergeant-at-arms, he escorted me out of the chambers. And by the time we got to the door, he put a big arm around my neck and said, Thanks, bro. <laughs> <laughs> he said, You know, a lot of these clergy dudes, they come in here and they're a bunch of wimps. They don't have the courage to name the name of Jesus, but you named the name. Thanks, bro. What's in a name? Salvation is in a name. Life is in a name. It takes courage to name the name. It takes Pentecost to name the name. Charles Wesley could say things so well. This is how he put it. Ye servants of God, your master proclaim and publish abroad his wonderful name, the name all victorious of Jesus extolled. His kingdom is glorious and rules over all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, for some reason, in your grace, you've shared with people like Peter, with people like us, the name, the one name, not a generic title of the blob God, of a generic deity, but a personal name, a relationship, the one name given under heaven that can save. And Lord, you've given us 
an assignment to go into all the earth and name the name. Just simply tell people, God so loved the world that his son Jesus came. He did miracles. He died. We killed him. But God raised him. And today he reigns in power as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Lord, would you raise up a generation of men and women who know how to preach the gospel in the indicative that simply states the reality of the lordship of your son and that you would fill us with your Pentecostal spirit, enabling us to name the name. And Lord, if we die doing it, we die doing it. But like Polycarp, we say, I will not deny the name of the one who's been true to me. Lord, thank you for the call upon our lives to name the name. Give us the ability to sing it as we close this service as your servants ought. In Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom, amen.